You are listening to the podcast from Mosaic Church. Stay tuned after it for more info about how to get and stay connected with our church family. Now, let's dive into this week's message. Hi, everybody, and welcome back. If you're new here, I want to welcome you today. My name is Morgan. I am the lead pastor. Uh, just real quick, I want to thank everybody also for all of your generosity toward our churches and our larger Every Nation spiritual family in Ukraine. Uh, we'll give you an update on that this week. Keep an eye on that situation, of course, for sure. But welcome back to our series in Romans 8. We took a little bit of a pause last week with our, our guest in town. Uh, it's called Better Than I Began, and we're looking at how the gospel of Jesus in Romans 8 can do that in our lives. And starting today, because we're halfway through, we're kicking off sort of a three-week look at the conclusion of the chapter, sort of the finale of the chapter, and looking at a series of three bold, three life-changing themes that the writer here, the Apostle Paul, says can change your life. So we'll begin with that first one right now, and the scripture reading will be on the screen in front of you. Here we go. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels, nor demons, neither the present, nor the future, nor any powers, neither height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's our reading today, all as people said. Amen. Yeah, there's a really, uh, really smart guy who wrote a really, really smart book. You may have been forced to read it once upon a time. It's called The Structure of Scientific Revolutions. A guy named Thomas Kuhn, and Thomas Kuhn said that when any person comes to new data, any person comes to new information, he or she or you, we always process it through the grid of what he called a paradigm, a personal paradigm in order to interpret that new data. In other words, and here is two points. Number one, no one comes unbiased to new information. You're not coming in unbiased right now, okay? Number one, no one comes in biased. Number two, our consistent approach to new information is either to look at it in order to add it to what we already believe or we throw it away. And the classic example of this, of course, is how the scientific community looked at the solar system for centuries. It was thought for years and years, of course, that the earth was at the center of the solar system, that everything revolved around the earth. That wasn't right. And so over time, new information came in and scientists were forced to look at current data in a new way and that suggested that maybe they were seeing everything incorrectly. And this is the way that Thomas Kuhn says that understanding progresses. We interpret through old paradigms. We see things through old grids until something comes along that's too big to ignore and it shatters our old grid. And then we get an entirely new way of seeing what was really true and right along. So what's Paul doing here in Romans 8? Here it is. He's trying to shatter something. He's trying to shatter an old grid, an old paradigm with something 
too big to ignore. He's trying to shatter your personal paradigm of how you think the love of God works in your life. What do I mean? I mean that most people believe this. They believe that the love of God is either something they have to earn to get or work to keep. To earn to get or work to keep. We believe we either have to work to get God's love or work to keep God's love. But Romans 8 says that the love of God is so good, it doesn't work like that at all. Romans 8 is trying to tell you that you can know absolutely without a shadow of a doubt. You have a heavenly Father who loves you at every moment, no matter what you do, no matter what happens to you. And that new grid, this first theme we're looking at this week, is called assurance. Assurance. The doctrine of assurance of God's love. That's what it's called. The doctrine of assurance is knowing and believing and feeling that God loves you. And Paul is trying to show us that assurance makes us better than we began. Say, Morgan, I'm not so sure what you just said is true. Okay, there's that old grid you're orbiting around. All right, I hope to show you today something too great to ignore. Let me try to show you three things about this new paradigm, a new grid, the grid of the assurance of God's love in your life. I want to show you, number one, that this assurance makes you better. Number two, why it makes you better. And finally, number three, how it can make you better. That it makes you better, why it makes you better. And finally, how it can. Let's go, number one, and try to see that it makes you better. How can you know that the assurance of God's love makes you better? Look Again, Paul Rice says, look, he says, I'm convinced, he's super sure, <laughs> that neither death, nor life, angels, demons, present, the future, powers, anything else in all creation can separate us from God's love in Jesus. Well, how does this help us? Here we go. All right, there's sort of this intramural debate among scholars and theologians I'm gonna drag you into for a minute. All right, you're welcome. It's over what Romans 8 is really all about because it's an important chapter. On the one hand, there are those who have pointed out rightly because you heard it also here a few weeks ago that Romans 8 is all about the ministry of the Holy Spirit, the third person of the one true God, Christians believe. After all, the Holy Spirit's mentioned 17 times, I believe, in this one chapter alone. On the other hand, some say, if you really want to know what the big idea of anything is, if you really want to know like what the plot of something is, just look at the end of it. Look at the end of the story. What's at the end of a book or a movie lets you know what something's all about. For example, the end of The Godfather, yes. Shows you, yes, someone said good, yeah. Shows you the movie was really all about the corruption of Michael Corleone. Michael starts off the movie as this idealistic, educated, honorable American soldier, but by the end, he's been changed into this murderous mobster. Return of the Jedi, yes, on the other hand, is like the opposite. It shows you Darth Vader at the beginning as the murderous intergalactic mobster, but it ends by showing you that he sacrifices himself for his son. So Return of the Jedi, in a way the whole trilogy, is really about the redemption Anakin Skywalker. The point is, what's at the end shows you what the whole thing was all about. And in the same way then, when you look at the end here of Romans 8, it sure seems like the whole thing, the whole plot, was about showing you how the love of God works. So, which one is it, class? You know, Is Romans 8 about the Holy Spirit 
Or is it about God's love? And the answer is yes. That's right. There's a few of those coming today, by the way. It's about the reality and the truth that the ministry of the Holy Spirit is to keep us away from that old grid working to earn or keep God's love and to constantly whisper to us now that through Jesus the love of God is ours forever no matter what happens on the inside of us and no matter what happens on the outside of us. Put it like this God loves you no matter the crazy on the inside of you or the crazy on the outside of you. Don't believe me? Just watch. All right, just getting a course. Not really. Don't believe me. All right, don't believe me. Think about two Bible characters, Joseph and Elisha. Okay, Joseph, number one. When we meet Joseph, he's a hot mess. His family's a hot mess. Dad's a super mess. His brothers are petty and cruel. How is God going to fix the family? Well, Joseph is thrown by his brothers into a pit. He's sold into slavery in another nation. Then he's lied about. He's put in prison for years. But if this never happens, come on, you know the story, he'll never be put in front of Pharaoh in Egypt to interpret a dream, never get promoted. He'll never advise Pharaoh about how to fix the coming famine crisis. But when the famine comes because he was promoted, now Joseph's able to save countless lives and his whole family is redeemed and reconciled. But if God would have pulled him out when he was there in that pit, if Joseph would have been instantly delivered, then he never would have changed, grown, matured, learned how to forgive, and never would have been put in a position to ultimately save the world. Joseph sat and he suffered while God saved him over many years. Now think about Elisha. Elisha, a prophet long time after Joseph and Israel. One day, one day, in this story, Elisha, he's surrounded by an enemy army, Aramaeans, I believe. It looks like it's curtains for our hero, but God answers his prayer and he strikes the enemy army with blindness. How many of you like that to happen right now somewhere in the world, right? Elisha is rescued. Ray, now, do you know where both of these stories take place? They both took place in a little town in ancient Israel called Dothan. Dothan. Dothan's only mentioned twice in the Bible. Once in Joseph's story, once in Elisha's story. One place, oh, but two very different deliverances. One time in Dothan, one man prayed and God did not change his circumstances. The other time, one man prayed and God did. So which man did God love? Hmm? Which man's life was God working in? Which man did God save? Was God working in Joseph's life or was he working in Elisha's life? And the answer again is yes, that's right. God was loving Joseph the crazy on the inside of him. Loving Elisha in the middle of the crazy on the outside of him. Same place, same surroundings, different result. Let me tell you, friends, please don't determine whether or not God loves you by looking through the lens of someone else's circumstance, someone else's situation, someone else's kids or family or career or house or stuff. Don't look at your Dothan moment and assume God doesn't love you because someone else's Dothan moment goes differently than yours, right? 
Let me tell you, God's love kept a wounded teenager. God's love kept an old man. And it will keep you. And isn't this Paul's point, by the way? Nothing can separate you from God's love. Now you say, well, like some people have, well, Paul's list doesn't include sin, right? You're putting an asterisk in there. Paul says, nothing in all creation can save me, but it doesn't include sin. God didn't create sin. Therefore, my sin can separate me from God's love. I would say no. Two things about that. Quick, please don't again create an asterisk in Romans 8 where there isn't one. Don't we think Paul is brilliant? Yes. Don't we think Paul is wise? Yes. Didn't Paul just spend the previous seven chapters going on and on about sin? Yeah. Do you think he would have forgotten that when he got to chapter eight? No. And number two, if your sin couldn't keep God from saving you by grace in the first place, why would your sin prevent God from keeping you now by grace? Now, Will your choice to sin, if you do that, affect you? Yes. Could it break your life and family? Yes. Can it bring devastating, sometimes irreversible consequences into your life? Yes. Do you need to repent and change and grow and obey God's word right now? Yes. Will it keep God from loving you though? No, no. The point is, let your old grid be shattered. Let me tell you, you're not God's employee. You're not his house servant trying to keep the boss from, you know, getting mad at you. No, you're his child, his child. And he's promised to work every dothan moment in your life for your good and for his glory. That's number one. That's number one. That it makes you better. Number two, let me try to show you now the why, the assurance of God's love makes you better. Because there's a specific, we're going to look at it, a specific why in here, a specific reason why you can know. That holding on to the assurance of God's love in Jesus makes you better. Look at this. Paul says, for those God foreknew, here's some big words coming. He also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. We'll look at this a little today, a little more next week. But now, right now, right now, it got a little awkward. You felt that? Because there's that P word. Predestination, right? Makes Christians real nervous, people real nervous. That's a Bible word, by the way. I did not make that up. I did not include that or put that in. So you shouldn't get nervous or afraid of what's in your Bible, okay? And by the way, Paul is so confident about the P word, predestination. He goes ahead, just to to make you uncomfortable, he goes ahead and uses it again in verse 30. And those he, in case you missed it, predestined. Yes, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. Why is he saying this? Well, again, I think he's trying to make the same point he made back in chapter five, that if you love God, it's only because God loved you first. And if he's done that work to get to you, right? Because you couldn't get to him first. We didn't go to heaven. Heaven came to us. We couldn't get to Jesus. Jesus had to come to us, didn't he? Yes. And if he saved you, despite your impenetrable, impossible to come to him, sin-oriented heart, why in the world would you think that you could get away from him now? Come on. The point is, Paul is saying, look at how much God loves you. He chose you way back there. He's going to work to fix everything way up there. God loves you so much, he's working everything out in your life for good. Now, you ought to get an amen at least one today. (laughs) 
Now, historically speaking, that thought has been enough for humanity. But because we live in our, let me emphasize this, our modern moment with our modern objections, we object to that. We don't like the P word. We don't like the idea that God is able to control and direct the outcome and course of human lives and history. We say we have completely free will. We are completely free people in the world who completely choose our own adventure like those books our Gen X kids grew up reading, right? That's you. But I want to tell you, that's actually, if you think like that, that's not actually what a lot of the scientific community believes. Do you know this? A lot of the scientific community, especially when it comes to biology and micro, by some way, I got you so nervous right now. I love it. I love it. I love it. <laughs> biology, microbiology, paleontology, physics, they actually insist everything is predetermined. The late Stephen Hawking said famously, your future is already written in your DNA, choices, what you're gonna do and become. And he says in his book, The Grand Design, he's using that on purpose, salaciously, by the way. Ironically, he didn't believe that. He says, we are no more than biological machines. So free will is an illusion. Thanks, Stephen. But we say, we don't like that. No, thank you. Send it back to the cosmic kitchen, right? No, thank you, Doc Hawking. We want to believe we are not determined by our DNA. We want to hear from another brilliant doctor, Doc Brown, in Back to the Future, who says, the future is whatever you make it, so make it a good one, right? I had a lady after first service come up to me and proudly show me her Back to the Future t-shirt she wore to church today. She picked the right day, all right? The future's whatever you make it, so make it a good one. That suits our American pop psychology mentality way more. But here's my point. Every sort of culture, every sort of view has in its paradigm this. They have, it has an either or mentality. Either or paradigm. It's either. Everything is predetermined like the movie Slumdog Millionaire. You saw that one which says that the main character was destined. It's called Kismet. Kismet, he was going to make it out of poverty. He was going to win the girl. It was predestined or it's just totally free will like Marty McFly. <laughs> Either Slumdog Millionaire or Back to the Future, you got to pick. But I want to tell you, nothing has what the Bible has. Nothing has what Romans 8 has. Yes, it says that God predestines things and people. But what are the things that God uses? Romans 8, 28. God takes all things, right? The things. That means all your all things, all your choices, all the things you have already chosen, all the things you have done and will do and that you did do and all of that, and he works them all into his plan. What's this saying, Morgan? Is Romans 8 saying, I am both free to choose and that God predestines? Yes, 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 once again. You are free to choose and God will hold you responsible and accountable for your choices. But your choices, this is saying, do not ultimately have the final say in history. And by the way, you should so much want this to be true. You should so much want this to be true. Let me show you why. Years ago, uh, a guy by the name of Ray Bradbury, the great sci-fi writer. This is science fiction. Yes, all you sci-fi folks out there. whom Carrie calls Morgan's people. Okay. Years ago, he wrote a story called A Sound of Thunder. It got made into a movie like 15 years ago. The movie was terrible. They did like a video game with the same, same name. 
But the story is great, and it's like the basis for about every time travel movie you've ever seen, including Back to the Future. But in Bradbury's story, in the future, there's this illegal time machine that exists that takes people back in time millions of years to hunt dinosaurs. That's the deal. But even the unscrupulous time-traveling company with the illegal time machine, it's called Time Safari. Even Time Safari has one rule. The Time Safari guide, Travis, tells one of the travelers named Eccles, says, Eccles, when you go back in time, you gotta make sure that you do one thing. He says, you've gotta stay on the path. When you get out, there's like this floating anti-gravity path and everyone has to stay on the path. Don't get off the path no matter what. Eccles says, well, why not? Why can't I get off the path? Travis says, if you get off and you step on a mouse, you could kill the mouse. Eccles says, what's the big deal about one mouse? Well, Travis says, if you kill the one mouse, think about all the families of that one mouse that could have, would have, should have been born. And then Travis goes on and he says, well, what about, what about the foxes? They don't need those mice to survive. For one of 10 mice, a fox dies. For one of 10 foxes, a lion starves. For one of a lion, all manner of insects, vultures, infinite billions of life forms are thrown into chaos and destruction by stepping on one single mouse, the caveman starves. With the death of that one caveman, a billion others yet unborn are throttled in the womb. Perhaps Rome never rises on its seven hills. Perhaps Europe is forever a dark forest. Step on a mouse and you crush the pyramids. Queen Elizabeth might never be born. Washington might not cross the Delaware. There might never be a United States at all. So be careful. Stay on the path. Never step off. And they go back in time. And guess what Eccles does? Don't do it, Eccles. He steps off the path. He steps on a butterfly. Accidentally kills it. Yeah, that's the butterfly effect. You've heard of that? Came from this story. They return to the future with the butterfly on his boot, only to realize when they get back, somehow they've changed now everything for the worse. And the story ends when Travis pulls out his gun and he shoots Eccles. There's a sound of thunder and the story ends. You're like, it's not very inspiring. inspiring no? It's not. But it is interesting. You gotta admit, yeah. Here's my point. Here's my point. Here's my point. If that's really how history, existence, humanity works, if by killing one butterfly you could ruin everything, if everything is up to you and me and God's not involved, you should never get out of bed in the morning. You shouldn't do it. You should be absolutely paralyzed with fear every day because what if you ruin a world and it's all your fault, right? On the other hand, if your choices don't matter at all, if it's all like pre-programmed DNA in some way or some weird like it's all God some way, like Christian Christian belief, like if we're at God's pre-programmed Stepford Wives children, we should all be passive because it doesn't matter. Nothing can be changed, right? Nothing can be helped. But you'll notice, by the way, that those in the Christian scriptures who know the God of the Bible best are neither paralyzed with fear or passive through inactivity. No, 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 no. And neither was the apostle Paul who wrote this. Think about this. At the end of the book of Acts, I love this. This is Paul's theology at work here. When he's on his way to Rome, 
He's facing trial there, uh, Caesar, in front of Caesar for preaching Jesus. He's sailing on a ship in the Mediterranean, and the ship crashes, and it's going down, and everybody's freaking out, and Paul goes back on her deck, and he prays, and he comes back with a word from the Lord. And he says to all the crew, all right, y'all, listen. Listen, God told me this. Here's what God says. We're all going to make it. We're all going to live. We are all going to make it. It's God's will. And then, because the storm's going on and people are freaking out, the sailors and the soldiers, they start jumping overboard. They start abandoning the ship into the water. And then Paul comes back with this. But if you leave the ship, you're going to die. <laughs> Hang on. We're all going to live? But if I get off the ship, I'm going to die? Yes, that's right. What's happening? God has a predetermined plan and our choices still affect what happens and what goes down. Here's what Paul is trying to get across in Romans 8. God's love is so big. It's so powerful in the world. It works not just despite your choices, which it does sometimes, but through your choices. And he works at Romans 8.28 all together into his plan. J.I. Packer, great theologian, calls this an antinomy. It's only an apparent contradiction. And just because we can't solve it, just because we can't completely grasp it, right? This is what we do. We don't acknowledge we're just a little bit underqualified for the job of God. No, we think, hey, we gotta figure it all out. Doesn't mean an infinite God who created all things can't figure this out. Let me ask you, is light a wave or a particle? Yes, it's got the properties of both. It functions like a wave and a particle. And if God is the true light of the universe, the father of light who created light to look like both a wave and a particle, but it's both and we can't figure it out, surely he can predestine history and allow you to make free choices which matter and promise to love you and keep you and work them in to good somehow. Only the Christian faith has this assurance of God's love. And holding on to it makes you better. Number three, let's see though, specifically how. How can this make us better? How do you, how can we, I hope, shatter that old paradigm grid, religion, moral performance, anxiety? It's one word, you have to, here it is. Now the P word, personalize personalize the love of God for you. Paul says God's love exists actually in one place. Actually, it's in one person. He says again, the love of God. It's where? Come on. In, in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Uh, our daughter, I've got a daughter, Karen, I have a daughter. She's in middle school. She's amazing, of course, we think so. We're her parents. It's our job, right? But recently, she's been having some trouble with this like minor bullying situation. It's not the worst thing in the world, uh, but it's not great. So we've been working with her on how to handle this. And what's bothering her, of course, is, is by how she's being treated, words that are being said to her by a way older girl who ought to know better. Uh, and the words are, are they're just hard for her to deal with, hard to deal with. And so we looked at her in the middle of this recently, and we said, listen, this isn't about you. It's just not. If it were, we would tell you. We're those kind of parents too. But this isn't happening to you because there's something wrong with you in this. There's actually it's something happening because there's something wrong with her. But there is maybe something that God wants you to learn and hold on to in the middle of all of this. So I looked at her and I asked her, I said, do you know why dad loves you? 
She kind of looked at me like this, like, you know, wondering, like, maybe she was expecting something I've been just holding on to for 13 years and I'm only going to lay on her now. I said, no. I said, Dad loves you because he loves you. Dad loves you because he loves you. And now that, that actually helped her. It got through to her a bit. And I think, I think that's the same thing that God, our heavenly father, is trying to get across to us all the way back in Deuteronomy 7, which Paul's sort of channeling here. Deuteronomy 7, God says to his people, then listen, the Lord did not set his affection on you and choose you because you were more numerous than other peoples, for you were the fewest. <laughs> of all people. Remember that, Israel, when you were like real small? But it was because the Lord loved you and kept the oath he swore to your ancestors that he brought you out. And when you read this, you're like, what? This is saying God loves his people because God loves his people? That sounds like circular reasoning. That's right. It is. It is. But surely you're thinking God saves his people because they were super good looking. Really, really powerful, super talented, massive influencers on social media. Right? God loves those people who get the super likes on TikTok, right? He only wants to use people with big platforms in the world. No, 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 no. God says, I love you. Not because you're great. It's just because I love you. Just because I love you. And by the way, this is not only the right thing to say to a child in crisis. <laughs> it's the right thing to say to your spouse. Free marriage tip coming here for all of you. Married couples and anyone one day who might be wants to be. If your spouse ever asks you, why do you love me? (laughs) Don't start with this. It's because you're the prettiest or you're the smartest or you're the strongest or you're the, the richest. Why? Because all of those things, they're come and go type things, right? Let's just acknowledge you could always meet somebody prettier. Uh oh. What happens when you both know it, right? <laughs> someone smarter, someone richer, all that stuff could go. You could lose your looks, lose your mind, lose your money. But then what's even worse is now if you begin with that, you're asking the other person to centralize that. Make that the central factor in your relationship. Now they have to keep it up or the implication is if they don't, then you're gone. You've just made, in other words, your love conditional. When you really love someone, you don't lead with that. You lead with this. I love you because I love you. And that's why God goes on in Deuteronomy 7. Know, therefore, he's saying personalize that the Lord your God is God. He's faithful, keeping his covenant of love. He's saying personalize my love. Let my covenant of love fill your heart. And now when you and I flash forward, when we look at Jesus Christ, Centuries after this on the cross, as his friends have left him, as his countrymen have left him, as his empire was killing him, as God Almighty looked away and you look at him and you realize that at any moment he could have stopped it. He could have prevented it and walked away, but he didn't, but he stayed and he hung and he didn't come down and he stayed and hung for you because he loves you. You can know that. Romans 8 is true, that God loves you. Nothing in all the world can separate you from the love of God that's in Jesus Christ, our Lord.
He paid it all. Hung there for you to make that exchange. Your junk for God's righteousness, your insecurities for God's love, all the ways you made yourself the sinner, all the ways that you've done every sin. If he's loved you like that, if he stayed and he didn't come down then, if he didn't stop loving you then, why would he stop loving you now? See, what if you were assured of that, huh? Listen, if I'm assured of that, if I'm assured of a love like that, it makes me want to love that person back. It makes me want to drop whatever's in my hands and reach out for them. And that's what the assurance of God's love does. If we believe that, I think it would make us better than we began. I think we'd be less anxious. We'd be way less apt to judge our neighbor or that group or those people and to get something out of that judgment. No, we could just love freely, not take something or someone that doesn't belong to us because we know we're loved freely. The assurance, the love of God makes us better than we began. There's a reason why, church, Christians have sung for a long time this hymn, Blessed Assurance, Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. An heir of salvation, purchased of God, born of his spirit, washed in his blood. This is my story. This is my song, praising my Savior all the day long. Hope you could say amen to that. Let me take a moment and pray for us. God, I pray today, whatever we're walking through, going through, feeling, hanging on to, highs or lows, something we're worried about in our future, some we're hanging on to from our past. Your word says we can't be separated from your love. This isn't just for happy people in nice neighborhoods. This is for the shipwrecked, for the hungry, for the starving, for the downcast, for the marginalized, for the forgotten, for the oppressed, for those beaten by the, the rod of an empire, those neglected and imprisoned unjustly. This is for them. All those who call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And Lord, I'm praying we would personalize your love for us today, now, in Jesus' name. Let this be true of us. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Thanks for listening. For more info about how to get and stay connected to Mosaic Church, please visit us online at www.mosaicchurchaustin.com or download our app from your app store.